Kicking off a new series tonight we're calling Culture Wars, and we're just simply talking about the issues that you just saw in that video. The truth is, we are living in changing times. Can I get an amen in the house? As Christians who are committed to making a difference in this world and not just kind of hunker down, you know, there's a whole lot of churches that are singing songs like, Hold the fort, for I am coming, Jesus beckon still. It's like kind of, you know, okay, we're, we've lost, so we're just going to hold on until Jesus gets here and hope a few of us make it. I mean, that, that, that's the mentality quite often of, of far too many churches these days, or this idea of hide me in the cleft of the rock. Some of the songs that I grew up singing that at a time had a whole different meaning to me than they do these days because the reality is God called us to take territory. I thought I'd get an amen out of that. He said, occupy till I come. You know that word occupy is a military term. It means take territory. He didn't leave you here to sit around, sit sour and soak until he comes. He didn't leave you here to deal with the stuff of life and go, woe is me. He left you here on purpose. This church is here for a purpose. And that purpose is to make a difference in our times. But in order to do that, we have to face the reality that we are living in shifting sands. We are navigating choppy waters. Times are a-changing. Can I get an amen in the house? So what we have to do is we have to learn how to navigate those waters. Now, I know all of us kind of agree with that. On a personal level, we sense that. But Pastor Andrew actually found some stats this week that, that were even surprising to me a little bit. And they're not even exactly current. They're, they're from just a few years ago. So I'd be scared to see what the current stats are in some of these areas. Let me just give you a few of the things that, that he found. The Parents Television Council, for instance, studied American television from 2005 to 2010. You know what they found? They found a 69% increase in profanity on television. They found the use of the bleeped or muted F word increased from 11 times in 2005 to 276 times in 2010. That's a 2,409% increase over a five-year period. I can't imagine what it is in 2017. The use of the bleeped or muted S word increased from 11 to 95. That's 763%. And some of you will be dismayed by this because you like to get your news from them. But Fox News Network is one of the worst perpetrators. Their per hour use of profanity is up 269%. That's just, that's reality. And we're talking about scripted television. We're not talking about, oops, this is live TV. It slipped out. Add to that, the American Psychological Association did a study, and they found that 40 million Americans now visit a porn site every year. 42% of Internet users, brace yourself, 42% of Internet users between the ages of 10 and 17 years old visit a porn site. Some accidentally, because quite frankly, it's so easy, sometimes it can be hard not to. I mean, you type in truck, and you get all kinds of stuff, because truckers look at stuff. I mean, it's just, it's pretty easy to land on that, but nevertheless, 42%. Now, here's, the, here's the, the scary part, is that the studies have found that the result of that is teenagers who look at explicit 
material on the internet are more likely to develop a casual attitude towards sex, that it's just a physical act like eating or sleeping or drinking. Times are changing. And don't get me started on music. I'm old enough, been around long enough that I remember when that rascalian, devilish band came to the American shores and everybody wanted them to leave. They were called the Beatles. And they sang them horrible songs like, I want to hold your hand. <laughs> to be contrasted with George Michael, who just passed away, his famous song, I want your sex. And he wasn't talking about male and female. And that's just the media. You know, as a pastor, I've seen dramatic changes in attitude toward the church during that period as well. I remember the day, I'm going to sound old, but it's true. I remember the day that when somebody asked me a question and I told them what the Bible said, they went, oh, pastor, thank you for telling me that and clarifying that for me. Now I've got some work to do. That's not where we live anymore. Now you can look at someone, they'll ask you a question, you answer their question, and they will say something like, well, thank you for telling me what the Bible says is the truth. Now I have to go figure out for myself what my truth is. The times they are are changing. Because of my role in the Acts 2 network and planting churches in many parts of, of the United States and the world, I get calls from pastors all the time, regularly that say, uh, Pastor Jim, can you tell me how to handle this? I've got a cohabitating couple that want to join the church. I've got a, a same-sex marriage couple that want to join the church. I'm getting asked about gay rights. I'm getting asked about the potential lawsuits uh, that we're going to face if we don't handle these things properly. I mean, those are the kinds of questions that they used to ask me about a Bible story. <laughs> they ask me different questions now. But hear me, guys, I'm not here to create a list. I'm here to say whatever the specific issues are, the bottom line question is this. What do you do as a, as a Christian who's committed to make a difference in his or her times, what do you do when you're trying to operate in a culture that's shifting? I mean, what is the, what is the right response? I find ourselves asking questions like, am I to try to change the culture? Or do I just accept that change is inevitable and these are changing times and I ought to kind of go with the flow? You may say, no, quickly. So of course not. But the sad reality is far many churches and Christians are settling for the latter. They're, they're adjusting to suit the culture instead of challenging the culture to change. And again, there is no simple answer to all of this. Um, but I can tell you what you're doing if you're getting it right. Would, would you like to know what you're doing if you're getting it right? I can tell you in simple terms. First and foremost, you are staying true to God's holy word, the Bible. His message hasn't changed. I got two amens and a head nod. <laughs> First and foremost, you are staying true to the Word of God. Can I get an amen in the house? Amen. Secondly, this may surprise you, and, not or, and your influence in the culture is increasing. You're getting it right when you are staying true to the Word of God, and your influence is 
increasing. Let me say that one more time because I want you to hear it. You may want to tweet it, hashtag culture wars, you know. You're getting it right when you're staying true to God's holy word and your influence is increasing in the culture. And of course, you immediately say, well, is that, is that possible? And the answer is yes, because here's the good news. Culture wars, Christ versus culture, has been uh, raging since the beginning of time. This is not new. This is not 21st century stuff. The issues are in our times, but, but, uh, but these, this war has been raging for a very, very long time, and there are lots and lots and lots of examples in the Bible of men and women who got it right. They stayed true to God's word, and their influence increased in their times. Give you a couple examples right quick. Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery, was in slavery for a season, wound up in prison for a season, but he stayed true to God's word. He stayed true to what he was taught uh, about who God is. And what was the result of that? He not only was lifted out of prison, but he became second in command of the most powerful nation on the planet and ultimately saved both uh, that nation and his own family and the nation of Israel from famine. You see, he stayed true to God's word and his influence in the world increased. Fast forward to the New Testament. The, the New Testament church, when it launched into the world, you talk about launching into a world that was culture against Christ. Christians in those days were thrown in jail for just saying they were followers of Christ. They were, they were thrown in the Colosseum for lion food just because they said Jesus. They had to come up with private codes uh, so they could recognize each other, signs of the fish and all that. That's where, that's where it came from, is there were secret codes to say, hey, I'm a follower of Christ, you're a follower of Christ, but we're not going to tell the world in this kind of public way because uh, we're not quite ready to go to the Colosseum yet. <laughs> they were taken into the streets and people threw rocks at them until they died just because they were Christians. And yet... We see the early church bursting on the scene. And what happened? They strayed true to God's word and their influence grew. Acts chapter 2, verses, uh, chapter two, verses 42 and 47. Be on your screens. How's that church described? It said they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. What does that say? They devoted themselves to what? Understand this is a time before the New Testament was written, so that's God's word to them. That was the apostles bringing to them what God had revealed to them that ultimately got written down into what we now call the New Testament. So they stayed devoted to the word of God. Keep going. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The Lord did what? Added to their number daily those who were being Saved. Now, I don't know if you understand what added daily meant in those days, but 3,000 people came to know Christ and were water baptized on the first day. You talk about rapid church growth. <laughs> Within a short period of time, the Bible says that 5,000 men plus women and children came to the Lord. Many of the priests that were complicit in having Jesus crucified came to know the Lord. And some scholars say that of the 250,000 people that lived in Jerusalem and its surroundings at that time, as many as 100,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ in a matter of a few months. And then the church exploded on the world. They reached the known world in their lifetime with the good news of Jesus Christ and stayed true to the word in the process. So that's what we're going to spend our time on this month, 
In the month of January, we're just going to lean in to how do we get there? How can we be people like Joseph? How can we be a church like that original Acts 2 church? To do that tonight, to kick it all off and kind of lay the foundation for it all, we're going to look at a guy, an episode in his life who got it right. My goal tonight with you is just simply to lay a foundation for this series and to whet your appetite a little bit. If you know somebody needs to hear this, bring them over the next four weeks because we're going to lean into this in a lot more detail. But tonight I want to whet your appetite by laying four foundational truths that are critical to us getting it right, which means, you want to say it or you want me to? Which means stay true to God's Word and our influence increases. Tonight we're talking about Daniel. Let me give you a little background on Daniel. Daniel was a Hebrew, grew up in Jerusalem, one of the best and brightest of his generation. When Babylon swept into the nation of, of, uh, of the southern kingdom in 586 B.C., they took back to Babylon uh, a bunch of people. We call them the, the, the exiles. They took them to Babylon to train them. That's the way Babylon did things. Assyria, when they conquered the northern kingdom, they send people in to stay. But Babylon did it the other way. They took the best and the brightest and brought them back to Babylon. Daniel was one of those young guys. He was about 16, the scholars tell us, when he went to Babylon. And so he had already formed his core beliefs. He'd already formed his core values. He'd already been trained in the Word of God when he got to Babylon and lived his life out there. And here's what I need you to hear me say right up front. He remained in Babylon his entire life. He stayed true to those convictions his entire life. And he not only survived three administrations, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius, but his influence grew every year of his life until he was the primary advisor to the king himself. You see, it can be done. It's been done. It can be done again. So that's my intro. We're going to be here for a while, aren't we? <laughs> I just simply want to lay out four foundational truths for us tonight from this episode in Daniel's life, and hopefully we can pick up enough stuff to say, okay, all right, I, can, I know what I'm going to be working on. Every one of these foundations we're going to be unpacking over the rest of the month, but let's lean into it now. Book of Daniel, brought your Bible, brought a smartphone. You want to look it up, Daniel chapter 1. It'll be on your screens as well, mostly reading from the NIV. We'll look at a couple of paraphrases as we go. So let's pick it up. Daniel chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Don't you love that word, besieged it? How many of you use the word besieged today? But you know what it means, right? He came in, he rocked their world, he tore their house down. I mean, and, and, and he snatched out, as I told you, he snatched out the best and the brightest and brought them back to Babylon. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. In other words, the Lord said, okay, I'm going to take my protections off of you, Jehoiakim. And I'm going to let Babylon do this. I'm going to let Babylon be my hand of judgment on you, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. You see what's happened? The king and even some of the vessels from the temple are taken by the king. These he carried off to the temple of his God, lowercase g, which means he ain't really God. He's a lesser God. He's an idol in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his, lowercase g, God. Here's all I want to say about that. The only reason, the only reason, did I say the only? The only reason that that happened is because Jehoiakim forsook the laws of God. 
You see, walking under God's umbrella, walking under God's protection, living within the parameters of God's laws. You understand his laws are not mean-spirited, I'm going to get you, I'm going to put boundaries on your life. They are a parent protecting their child. You don't teach your child not to play with fire because you want to deprive them of the joys of flame. <laughs> right? Why do you do that? You teach them about fire because you don't want them to get burned. So God's laws are designed to protect us. And when we walk out of that protection, then it's like we're under his umbrella, and then suddenly we're not under his umbrella. And our God is a gentleman, if anything. He says, okay, I'm here. I love you. Please come back. But I will not force you to stay. I will give you the privilege to walk away if that's what you choose. But I think I mentioned last week maybe that there are consequences to our choices when we make them. Let's pick our story back up. Verse 3, then the king ordered Hashphanaz, say it with me, Hashphanaz. He's a key player in this thing. We're going to say his name several times, and I'll have to say it slow and cumbersome every time. That's why I made you say it too, so you could feel sorry for me when I have to say it again, okay? <laughs> then the king ordered Hashphanaz, the uh, chief of his court officials, uh, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, uh, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. You see what's going on? The king says to Ashpenaz, go down to all the Hebrew boys that we brought back from Jerusalem, and I want you to pick the best. I want you to handpick the best of the best, and I want you to bring them to my court so that they can serve. He was to teach them, the Bible says, the language and the literature of Babylon. That's a whole sermon in itself. Maybe we'll get into it. Not tonight. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Verse, verse 5. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. So just stop right there and understand. You, you, you follow me? What's going on? Do you like... I remember I told you last week, I don't get feedback. I think you're not getting it, so I explain it some more. We'll be here a long time. So you're getting it? You're with me? Best of the brightest, brought over, going to teach them, going to train them in their language and their literature and that kind of stuff. And now he's assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. We got a problem already because the Hebrews had a very specific diet. They're on a very specific dietary law. And, to, and not to mention the fact that most of the Babylonian food had been offered to idols, false gods which they were not supposed to eat that either. So we got a problem right away from the outset of this thing. It's going to be a big deal for these Jewish guys that they've brought into the system. Okay, here we go. They were to be trained for three years. We're going to really invest in these guys, and they're going to, they're going to help serve and maybe even help lead one day. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Then it goes on to unpack the names of the guys that he picked. Most of these names are not names that you'd recognize today. Uh, it, in fact, even among people with strong church backgrounds, they're not really familiar kinds of names, but here it is. Among these are from Judah, the tribe of Judah. Daniel we know, right? We know Daniel? Do you know names? I've already told you his name. Of course you know. I just told you. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay, Daniel we know, but who is Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel uses their names, but most of us don't know them by those names. We, we know them by other names. Anybody know the names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even watch Veggie Tales, and they're going to tell you that their names 
right? We're my shack, your shack, and a bungalow, or something like that. That's... So you ready for the first foundational truth? Can I get a drum roll, please? Oh, the drummer's not there. Drum roll. If you want to stay true to God's word, and you want to increase influence in today's shifting sand culture, first of all, you've got to recognize that culture changes, but God doesn't. You've got to realize that culture changes. God doesn't. That means we have to know what can be changed and what can't be changed. Now, this is, this, this is a deep truth. This is an important truth. This is a critical truth. I hope you'll lean in and get this. We have to understand what is eternal and what is not eternal if we're going to stay true to God's Word and continue to influence the culture that's around us. It is amazing to me. Having Kim and I have been in this business 40-plus years now. Uh, we started out pastoring together. In fact, I was pastoring three months before we got married, and she came into it, you know, so our whole life together. We've been pastoring and leading churches. It, I, we could spend the rest of the month just talking about stupid stuff that churches fight about. First church that we pastored had a business meeting one night. The sanctuary needed painting, and somebody brought it up that we needed to paint it, and, the, and we opened the floor for discussion. Oh, Jesus, help me. We opened the floor for discussion, and somebody said, well, I've got a bunch of ivory painted my house that's fresh, and it's good, and there's plenty of it, and I will donate it, and we'll paint it ivory. And somebody else said, no, 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 you can't paint the sanctuary ivory. It has to be white. Because white represents holiness, and our God is a holy God. I'm serious. We're in a business meeting fighting over the difference between ivory and white. And I'm not sure that you could put both of them in front of me, and I could have told you the difference. And Kim says, amen. That's true. He doesn't know that. One of the elders' wives, deacons, I guess we call them, one of the deacons' wives got up and said, I'd sooner see the church burn to the ground didn't see it painted any other color than white. A.C. Wheeler, who was a retired pastor, who had retired back to our community, was sitting in the business meeting that night, and he got up and said, uh, <clears throat> God don't care if we paint it Pepto-Bismol pink. He just wants us to love him and love each other. <laughs> it is amazing the things that churches fight about. Do we sit on chairs or pews? Who cares? Do we sing hymns or choruses? Do we sing them from books or from screens? Huge fights, church splits over stuff that doesn't eternally matter. Come on. Have you figured out yet that God doesn't care about worship styles? <laughs> go, to, go to Africa. Kim's figured it out. Go to Africa with me and watch them worship. And then get on a plane with me and go to Latin America and watch them worship. And then go to Southeast Asia with me and watch them worship. Anybody think those styles are going to be different? Yeah. Now come back to the States and go to rural America and watch. And go to suburban America and watch. And go to urban America and watch. Anybody think those styles are different? Which one does God like? He likes the one that you like, of course. <laughs> Right? Is that what the Bible says? 
Bible doesn't say anything about God caring about style. What it says is he's looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Fact is, guys, the message is eternal, but the methods are not. But so many churches have gotten it backwards. They let the eternal things go, and they hold on to stuff that doesn't matter because it's their personal preference. I've seen it. You've seen it. They water the message down in hopes of getting people in as long as they get to sing the old songs and sit on pews. Jim's quit preaching and gone to meddling now. Right? It's backwards, guys. And hear me, it's a trick of Satan to get us to forget that the only way that we can be true to what we've called, we're called to do, which is occupy till he comes, is if we stay true to God's word and we increase in influence in the culture where we live. And if you're going to do that, you have to realize that culture changes. God does not. Can I get an amen? amen. Ready for the second truth? Second thing you've got to realize is that culture wants to rename you. Culture wants to give you a whole new name. Now, in the Bible, name always connects with character. It, has to, it connects with calling. Abram became Abraham, and Jacob became Israel, and, and Saul became Paul. I mean, that's always the case. In every one of those cases, and plenty more that I could cite, God changed their name to match the calling and the character that was on their lives as they move forward. That, that, was, that was a shift that God made on purpose. But that's not what happened in our Daniel story. God didn't change their names. The culture did. You track with that? Daniel became Belteshazzar. Daniel means God is my judge. Belteshazzar means lady, protect the king. Lady, protect the king. Exact opposite. Now, what is a judge? Is somebody that you know has the power to make a judgment, to cast a sentence, to make a decision, and he has power over you. That's the judge, right? Same thing is true for a kingdom. He has a king. He has the power to make decisions. But what's, so what's the shift in these two names? They're trying to get Daniel to stop seeing himself as somebody who respected the power and authority of the God of the universe to someone who was afraid of man. Now sit real still so nobody will know, but let's just be honest with ourselves because it's just me and you and God for a minute <laughs> we've never crossed the line to be more afraid of what people thought than what God thinks have we no of course not no we would never do that oh and by the way lady protect the king you think gender confusion is a new issue it's been around from the beginning of time too Hear me, you know the culture is changing you when you're more concerned about what people think than when you know what God knows. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Yahweh is the Old Testament name of God that denotes his loving kindness and his care over us. And so Hananiah's name was Yahweh has been gracious. They changed his name to Shadrach, which means I'm afraid of God. 
This idea of moving from a reverential fear and awe of who this amazing, gracious God is to the idea that we should be afraid of this mean, vengeful God, this God who's intolerant, this God who is bad. And, and, and people will transfer that idea of who God is, that cultural idea of who God is, they will transfer it onto you and say, yeah, you church people are mean. You church people are judgmental. You, you church people are intolerant. At the very same time that they're being totally intolerant of your faith, they will accuse you of being intolerant when you're being gracious. Hello? Is this microphone on? I mean, is this? It's truth, guys. But you've got to understand, taking a stand for truth is not mean, it's loving. Because God's law were not, were not given to us to, to limit us. They were given to us to protect us. Just like that loving parent teaches his child not to play with fire. Mishael means who is what God is. This idea that there is no one like my God, and I'm going to shout it from the mountaintop. I got this amazing God. And what does culture want to say? They want to change your name to Meshach. I am despised and humiliated. From confidence to cowardice. We want to say, man, <laughs> I want you to know my God and how amazing he is. And the culture says, who do you think you are? I know who you are. I know you. Keep your religion to yourself. My opinion is just as valid as yours. Is it making sense? Have you felt that pressure? Azariah means Yahweh. Again, that's the Old Testament name for a gracious God. Yahweh has helped me. Abednego is the servant, it means the servant of Nebo, uh, which means you're moving from a son to a slave. Nebo was a tyrant. So now we're talking about moving from a relationship with a loving God through his son Jesus Christ to a religion where I have to keep a list of do's and don'ts and rules in order to get to heaven. That's the pressure that culture would put on you. So the first takeaway from Daniel is that culture changes, God doesn't. The second takeaway is you've got to remember who you are. You've got to remember who you are. If you don't, this ever-changing culture will try to convince you that you are somebody that God never intended you to be. Do I need to say that again? If you don't remember who you are in Christ, this culture will try to force you into believing that you are somebody that God never intended you to be. Before you know it, you'll be walking around dragging your heels, saying, I'm a worm. I'm no good. Every party needs a pooper. That's why they invited me. Party pooper. I walked out of the spotlight and everybody's they're, they're panicking back there. Sorry, guys. You, you get what I'm saying? I am a child of the God of the universe. And he made me on purpose. Anybody here with me on that one? He made me on purpose. With a purpose. Come on, let's give him praise for who he is. Don't you dare let the culture rename you. Now let me tell you, we're going to unpack this during the series. If, if you're going to remember who you are, then you've got to remember in two areas. You may want to jot this down in your notes if you're taking notes. First of all, who you are in Christ, that is your salvation. And then secondly, who you're called to be. 
If you really want to be able to stand against what culture will throw at you to get you to change your name, you've got to remember who you are in Christ, i.e. your salvation, and two, who you were called to be. When it comes to who I am in Christ, I look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 in the Amplified. Therefore, therefore, if anyone is in Christ that is grafted in, joined to him by faith in him as the Savior, he is a new creation, new creature, reborn and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Reborn and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Say it with me. Reborn and renewed by the Holy Spirit. The old things... In other words, the previous moral and spiritual condition, the previous moral and spiritual condition have passed away. Behold, new things have come because spiritual awakening brings new life. So when the culture says to me, somebody from my past who hasn't come to Christ says to me, I remember who you were back in the day. Who do you think you are to be the campus pastor of the bridge in Goldsboro? I just say, ain't it amazing what God can do? <laughs> when Satan dredges up my past, my past sins and my past failures, I just say to him, well, I'm in Christ now. I'm the new me and you're still the old you. And I know where I'm going and I know where you're going. Right? Because I know who I am in Christ. Not because I'm somebody, not because I got a title or a degree, but because I am in Christ. Because Jesus Christ gave his life for me, and I accepted what he did for me, and he gave me new life and a fresh start. If you haven't gotten that, please, I beg you, don't leave this room tonight till you do that. Establish that relationship with Christ. Clean slate, fresh start, but you don't know where I've been. It's irrelevant. God loves you just the way you are. He loves you too much for you to stay the way you are. He wants you to grow, but he will give you a fresh start to go on that journey. You with me? Then I said there was a second thing you had to know if you were going to stand true to who God made you, and that's your calling. I know, I know who I am. I know who I am in my calling. I am Pastor Jim. I, I meet people and uh, from various walks of life and various places, and, and I get introduced in all kinds of ways, and, and people will ask me sometimes, so, so what do we call you? Do we, do we call you Dr. Wall? I have, I'm an adjunct professor at Regent University. The, my students will say, well, do we call you Professor Wall? Do we call you Reverend Wall? I say, Gumby works. Just call me in time for dinner. That's... <laughs> But let me tell you what I've experienced through the years. Um, when I spend any time with anybody for any length of time, all of that other junk goes away and they just call me Pastor Jim. Because at the end of the day, they see my heart. And I have the heart of a shepherd. Somebody said to me just before the service, and I don't think they even realized how powerful those words were in my spirit. They said, you're a good teacher. I can't wait to see if you're a good pastor. I'm called to be a pastor. And if none of those names work for you, can for, work for you, you can call me your holiness or something. I don't <laughs> That works too. But can I be just honest with you, just be transparent with you for a moment in this new thing that we're getting started when when the opportunity came and when the senior leadership team of our church was looking for a campus pastor for the Goldsboro campus and they asked me if I would step into this role at least for a season, I didn't have to stop and pray long and hard. I didn't say give me a few days to agonize before God because I knew who I am. 
I knew who I am in Christ, and I knew who I am in my calling. And so I said, okay, yeah, if that's what you need, that's what I'll do. You see, once you know who you are, and once you know what you're called to do, you don't have to wrestle with, is this God's will for my life or not? Yes, it's his will for you to serve him and to use the gifts that he's given you. That's his will. Don't agonize over all the details of it. Just do what he's called you to do. Again, we'll unpack that in a lot more details. For now, just hear me say, anytime you find yourself hesitating to respond to God's call on your life to go do something God wants you to do, or you're struggling with who am I in the face of this culture, remind yourself of who you are in Christ. And remind yourself of what you're called to do in service of the king. Ready for truth three? I just saw the clock. We're going to rush. Maybe. We'll try. Resolve to establish your convictions. Truth number three is you've got to resolve to establish your convictions. We're going to unpack this in a lot of detail during the series, so I won't take a lot of time with it here, but Daniel chapter 1, verse 8 says, Daniel resolved, I love that word, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now I want you to get this. He made up his mind, I'm going to stay true to what God's word has taught me, resolve, that's a good word, right? I'm not moving from this. But when he said something to the head guy, what's his name? I can't pronounce it. Yeah. <laughs> that guy. He, did, he wasn't belligerent. Do you see belligerence in that passage? Do you see arrogance in that passage? What do you see? You see respect. You see, gentleness. It, it's almost like he's saying, I'm, I'm really sorry, sir. I'm not trying to say anything against you or anything against you guys. Uh, I'm sure you enjoy your food. In fact, if I ate your food, I probably would enjoy it too. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, it looks pretty good to me. I mean, come on. Have you ever eaten kosher? Some of it's okay, but some of it is just really bland stuff. I mean, leaven, unleavened bread. I mean, it just doesn't get much bland, blander than that kind of stuff. I got to tell you, I love pork chops. <laughs> I love fried chicken fried in lard. I just <laughs> don't get no better than that. I love lard biscuits. I love that stuff. And so if they come along and say, you know, have some of this, I'm not going to say, oh, that's horrible looking. That's a lie. It's <laughs> not what Daniel said. He didn't say my food tastes better than yours. He's saying as respectful as he, know how, as he knew how, I'm trying to stay true to the dietary and spiritual teachings that I've learned and I've committed to. Please Allow me to stay true. Hear me, guys. When this shifting culture starts putting heat on you to join in on what they're eating and what they're drinking and where they're going and what they're watching and what they're doing, you are doomed to fail unless you have defined the lines for yourself. If you have not defined what those lines are and resolved in your heart that you're not going to cross those lines no matter what culture says, you've set yourself up for falling to temptation when it comes. And you and I know this can be incredibly hard. The culture can be relentless in tempting Christians in hopes of bringing them down. 
and then accuse you of being intolerant simply because you won't go along. Hear me. It's critical for your own health, and it's critical for your effectiveness in helping other people that you define your convictions based on Christ, not on culture, because convictions become choices, and choices always, always have consequences. If you don't decide what your convictions are and resolve to hold on to them, the culture will gladly tell you what they should be. We'll unpack that during the series. Foundational number truth, and we will bring this puppy in for a landing. Remember that tests come to prove your faith. Remember that tests come to prove your faith. Let's go to verse 9, Daniel 1 verse 9. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy uh, to David. In other words, David, uh, Daniel, uh, I said David, I meant Daniel, stayed true. And what did God do? He intervened. He caused this guy to show favoritism. Uh, and and Ashpenaz represents the culture in our story, right? So uh, here he is looking favorably on Daniel simply because Daniel stayed true, right? But the official told Daniel, I- I'm afraid of my Lord and my king who has assigned your food and drink. In other words, I, I really want to show you favor, and I really come to like you a lot, and-, and I have great respect for the stand that you're taking. But, you know, the king can cut my head off if you don't eat this food. And so I'm kind of in a bind here. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? In other words, what's going to happen to me if down the road the king sees you and says, what's wrong with that kid? Well, I let him eat his own food. Well, I'm the one in trouble, so what do I do with this, he says. The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not my shack, your shack, and a bungalow, but Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What did he say? Please test your servants for 10 days. Please test your servants for 10 days. And I love that word test. I got a wrap, but I want you to understand there's a profound difference. We'll unpack during the series, but there's a profound difference between a temptation and a test. Temptation is what culture will throw at you to lure you away from who God is and the stand that you've taken to serve Him. In order to stand up to those temptations, you've got to decide who you are in Christ and who you're called to be. You have to predetermine what those, tem- what those convictions are in order to stand up to those temptations. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about tests. And God allows tests to come. Because the result of you passing that test is that your faith is built and the culture that's watching begins to see you as the real deal. God will allow those tests, not for his information. He knows. For whose information? For mine, for the culture, for myself to know that I can in the power of Christ, and for the sake of the people that are watching me, they can say, maybe this guy's for real after all. And can I tell you right now that at the end of the day, people aren't necessarily looking for somebody that agrees with everything they say. They're just looking for real people who are the real deal, who are who they say they are, who operate with integrity. A young man in our lives a few years ago who's about our oldest son's age 
said to him one day in a conversation, he said, I don't believe a word your dad says. My son was a little offended by that at first. He came home and told me what Tommy had said. He said, Tommy told me the other day, I don't believe a word you say. But he went on to say, but I believe he believes it. And I said, Andrew, don't be mad about that, because here, here, here's the deal. If Tommy ever gets to the place that he wants the truth, where do you think he's going to come? He's going to come to somebody that he thinks is the real deal. Well, Pastor Jim, that's not a very positive message that you're bringing. God's going to allow tests. Okay, let me be positive about it. I am positive you're going to face tests. <laughs> In your Christian experience. Understand, Daniel didn't just endure this test. He invited it. You see that? Test us for ten days. And you see, the test in the Bible is all often intense. Ten commandments and, and the church of Smyrna was tested for ten days. The tithe is ten percent of your income. You understand that tithe has far less to do with money than it does a test of your faith? It comes down to, do you actually believe that the 90% that is left will go further because God is in it than the 100% that would have if God wasn't in it? That, it's a test of faith. And I don't know why God chose money as the acid test of our faith, but He did. And every time you decide whether or not to tithe, you're making a decision about the test. Hear me, guys. When God allows tests in your life, it's for a positive purpose. It's to teach you something that you need to know. And so when they come, don't bolt, don't run, don't panic. Imagine that there is a great announcer in the sky saying, this is a test. This is just a test. Do not adjust your sets. If it were an actual emergency, I would have told you. Daniel said to Ashpenaz, end of the series, I'll have his name down. <laughs> Test us. Pick it up, verse 9. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. All I'm saying to you is that, is don't run from tests. Don't run from tests, because God is the one that allowed that test and he has a positive purpose in your life. People will tell me sometimes, don't pray for patience because the way God gives you patience is he gives you reasons to be patient. And I'm saying, do you pray for patience knowing that a test is going to come? That's what I'm saying. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, I like the way the message paraphrases it. Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you will become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. I'm way out of time. I've got to stop. Let me do it this way. It was just after midnight when the phone rang. Kim and I had allowed our two oldest boys to go out with a couple other friends. And they were late. And we were worried. Days preceding cell phones and all that sort of thing, we didn't know where they were. And it was the phone call that every parent dreads. It was a police officer that says, we have your son. 
he's been hurt. And uh, he told me where he was, and, and I told Kim what was going on. And our youngest son was still home, so Kim stayed with him. I said, you stay with Zach. I'll go see what's going on. When I got there, it was less than a mile from the house. He'd been in a very serious accident. We didn't realize how serious at the time, but it was far more serious than we realized. Long and short of that story, he spent four months in hospital, multiple surgeries, died twice. They were able to resuscitate him both times. But that night in the trauma center of Centera Norfolk General Hospital, Kim was with him in the back area, in the treatment area. They ran the rest of us off out in the waiting room. She was there when the night nurse came in and was kind of caring for Adam. She didn't know Kim. She didn't know Adam, didn't know me. But she said, um, this isn't about your son. He's going to be fine. This is about what you and your husband are doing. And Satan doesn't want it to happen. But God's going to do a mighty work through your lives. And we received that word and held on to that word for four months. Fast forward 20 years, Adam's married, has a son. Amazing little boy. He and his wife are in church, still at Community Church that we pastored in Chesapeake for so many years. And uh, Community Church has grown to thousands and 15,000 salvations on record at that church after Adam's accident to this day. They water baptized 425 last year alone. Pass the test. I don't know what your test will be, and I don't know what the results will be, but I know God allows them on purpose. We'll talk about tests during this series. I got to close. I said that before, didn't I? <laughs> Daniel 1, 15 through 17, at the end of 10 days, it seemed that they were looking better and healthier than all the young men who ate the king's finest food. So the overseer continued to withhold their fine food and wine. They were to drink, kept giving them vegetables. For these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all kinds of literature and wisdom. God also, uh, Daniel also understood all kinds of visions and dreams. What am I saying? It can be done. You can stay true to God's word and have increased influence in the culture. It can be done. We're going to learn how this month. Don't miss a single service. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that somehow in the midst of all this stuff and me talking too long, that, that your truth is spoken into our hearts tonight. We realize that if we're actually going to be a people who stay true to your word and influence the culture in increasing ways, we've got to recognize culture changes God doesn't. We've got to realize that the culture wants to rename us. We're not going to allow them. We've got to resolve to establish our convictions. We've got to remember that tests will come. You're the one that allowed them for your purposes. And they're always positive. So speak to us tonight, Lord, and empower us to be the people you made us to be. And then use us. There are thousands of people sitting within a 20-minute drive of where we're sitting right now who desperately need Jesus. We're convinced that there is no hope left anywhere, and we have good news. Use us to bring it.
in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 God bless you.